Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by Marine Layer. For 15% off your first order, visit marinelayer.com and enter decoding at checkout. This episode is also sponsored by Arjuna Books, who is proud to present Mink Eyes and Tenebrae by Max McBride. Max McBride, who's a storyteller, uh, he's written two books. The novel Mink Eyes is a modern noir, uh, a serious sci-fi fiction wrapped in a heart-thumping, hard-hitting detective novel set in 1986, the tarnished heart of the greed is good decade. Mink Eyes is packed with murder, addiction, sex, and obsession. Tenebrae is a book will change how you feel about poetry. It's received only five-star reviews on Amazon, and critics have called it moving, honest, celebratory, raw, and astonishing. Read a sample of these books on Amazon, then order Mink Eyes and Tenebrae from your local bookstore or on Amazon. Join the Max to the Max community at www.maxtothemax.com. That's www.max, the numeral 2, T-H-E-M-A-X.com. Read, comment, and comment again. Tell me, what were you hoping to find? To prove. That no system can tell me who I am. That I have a fucking choice. (laughs) Yet here we are. Again. Times have you tested me? It's been a long time, William. Longer than we thought. I have a few questions for you. The last steps a baseline interview to allow us to verify. Verify what? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. And welcome to the show. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of the show Westworld. We don't spoil anything from future week's episodes. That includes anything on the next time on preview. Of course, there is no next time on preview because this is the season two finale that we're reviewing today. It's called The Passenger. You can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Now, I know what you're thinking right now, listeners in the audience. You're thinking this is extremely bittersweet because on the one hand, this is a highly anticipated episode of the Westworld podcast. Uh, but also, uh, this is the season finale recap. So like, there's going to be no more episodes of the show after this. Well, we're here to tell you, A, that's wrong. 
because uh, there is going to be one more episode. There's going to be a bonus episode. That was one of the rewards uh, that someone backed us for, and we're really excited about recording that bonus episode. So, so stay tuned. Subscribe to the feed. Uh, for another bonus episode, we'll, we will go over your emails, your feedback, and, and catch up on anything that we missed during this episode of the podcast. Also, we should point out where you can find us in the meantime, uh, you know, in, in the next year or so, uh, or however long it takes, one to two years before the next episode of Westworld is released. Uh, and so, Joanna, uh, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet in the, in the intervening time between now and the next <laughs> Decoding Westworld? Yes. Well, a couple things. Um, please, please forgive this shameless self-promotion. This is the space for it, I guess, though. Uh, you can find myself on VanityFair.com. I have heard feedback from some people that they were a little frustrated that we now have a paywall up on VanityFair.com. But I want to let you know that we're having a 4th of July sale on subscriptions to the website uh, or to the magazine, I should say. It's $15 for two whole years. So you get a magazine every month. Unlimited articles on VF.com, a slam and tote bag, uh, $15 for two years. So that'll take you through like all my Game of Thrones coverage uh, until the show's over. So, you know, you might want to might want to snap that deal up. It's our July 4th sale. It's a limited time. I don't exactly know when it's ending, but I would say get it in before July 4th. Well, um, I, I like how you put it too on, on online, which is like this, if you buy one at this price, you're basically covered through the next season of Game of Thrones and you do not want to be behind a paywall when Joanna Robinson's recapping Game of Thrones, right? So, I mean, act now. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is, oh, uh, Storm of Spoilers, which is another podcast that I do, is year-round. We're doing a lot of fun stuff like book clubs and movie clubs and all the stuff associated with it. So you want to check that out. So that's Storm of Spoilers. And that's a general pop culture uh, podcast. And then I do two podcasts for Vanity Fair right now. One is called Little Gold Men. It's about award season. It's sort of like an all year round award season podcast. And the other is called Still Watching. We just wrapped up Still Watching Westworld. And next we're moving on to Still Watching Sharp Objects. So if you're interested in the upcoming HBO series with Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson based on the book by Jillian Flynn, then uh, Still Watching colon Sharp Objects is the feed for you. And that is it for me. What about you, Dave Chen? Well, I do a weekly film podcast called The Slash filmcast uh, at slashfilmcast.com you can also uh, find me doing YouTube videos at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky that's Dave Chen SKY which is also my Twitter username and I also do a podcast called The Tobolowski Files which is pretty cool it's a storytelling show with actor Stephen Tobolowski find that wherever you find your podcast so that's where you can find us uh, in the intervening months until the next Decoding Westworld. We should also point out that uh, we have been appearing in random forms of media this week. Uh, we're really grateful to the Washington Post for including us in their article. Uh, I think it's entitled "Is Watching." I'm sorry, "Is Talking About Westworld More Fun Than Watching Westworld?" Uh, and so they got a bunch of uh, great uh, Westworld commentators on there uh, to discuss the phenomenon of. Uh, the Westworld recap culture. And uh, that article is written by Travis M. Andrews. We're really grateful to him for inviting us to appear in that article. Joanna, I think you're also appearing in, I'm not even gonna, I'm gonna, not going to say what the device is, but because it'll trigger everyone's device, but there is a Amazon cylinder uh, <laughs> that has a game that you've made an appearance in, right? Yeah. So if you go to that Amazon cylinder, yep. um, Whose name rhymes? Can we see rhymes with? It'll probably set it up anyway. Yeah, right? with uh, Schmalex. Yeah, Schmalex. Uh... <laughs> yep. 
There's like a Westworld game for it, and honestly, I don't even know what it's called. If you go into the Schmolexa app, uh, nice. and and type in Westworld, it'll pull you. Just like have to enable it in Skills or something like that, and on the app, uh, and then you just sort of yell. This is what I did, and I just sort of yelled the word Westworld at my <laughs> device, and then you you won't you won't miss it because you hear the whistle. The, of the Sweetwater train and then the like familiar sounds of the music start playing. Anyway, so it's just like a, it's a little game. I did not play it, honestly, if I'm being really honest with you, I did not play it, but I checked it out because I found out that my name is apparently an Easter egg in it. So if you start the game, you go into a saloon, some, you'll hear the voice of Clementine and then you'll hear the voice of this uh, character named Rose, who's the madam in the saloon. And you just like ask her uh, if she knows Joanna Robinson and she will give you an answer. And mm. that's kind of fun. So Very cool. Congratulations on being included in the Amazon Cylinders uh, game <laughs> on this subject. So, so prestigious. Very nicely done. Uh, very cool. I should also point out, by the way, you know what's really interesting is uh, I recently got a new manager at work. And she has the ex- two two interesting facts about her. Number one, she has the exact same name as the Amazon Cylinder, um, so you can't really say her name at the company, or else it's going to trigger a bunch of Amazon Cylinders. Uh, I'm just joking; we don't actually keep those around. And um, uh, she also listens to this podcast. So if uh, you're listening right now, manager, um, hope you're having a good day. Okay, because uh, I can't say her name because I don't want to trigger all the Amazon cylinders. So, uh, okay, I think that's all in terms of self-promotional stuff. I know people are really like tapping their watches like, when are you going to get to the episode? The only thing I want to mention is uh, – final thing I want to mention is uh, we – had uh, names like we we said you know when we were doing the Kickstarter that we would read your name off as a Kickstarter reward this season and we read off pretty much every single name but we did miss uh, one uh, Gustavo Villarreal right am I is that right did I get that right anyway Gustavo it's, is the uh, wait it, can I do it <laughs> please do it do it Gustavo Villarreal uh, nice yeah. nicely done nah. uh, Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Nice is a strong word. Um, Gustavo <laughs> is the uh, brilliant designer who did our podcast art. He's done a bunch of other illustrations for us, um, and you can find him on Twitter at uh, Wiki Rascals, uh, username at Wiki Rascals. Uh, and uh, overall, all around great guy, big supporter of our work, and so uh, wanted to just uh, throw that name out. For some reason, his name didn't get read uh, during the course of this this podcast season. So wanted to just uh, make sure that we were able to pay him homage before uh, the show wraps up. So I think that's going to take us to our emails for this week, right? We've got a bunch of emails this week at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. And uh, I wanted to acknowledge some of them. First of all, uh, I think it was last week's episode where I spoke about the Christian myth of Cain and Abel. And Joanna Robinson, this managed to piss off two separate groups of very large, you know, groups of people. Mm. Uh, one of them was uh, Jewish people who uh, said that, you know, here's here's one email that's uh, representative. Um, quote, the Cain and Abel story isn't a Christian anything. It's from Genesis chapter 4 of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, if you must. 
Uh, biblical criticism aside, it was almost certainly penned long before Jesus ever walked the earth, assuming he did so, end quote. That's from one of our listeners, Mark, who wrote into decodingwestworld.gmail.com. So I managed to uh, anger all of the uh, Jewish listeners who consider the Cain and Abel story part of uh, their uh, uh, historical text. And then I uh, managed to anger all the Christians who don't consider the Cain and Abel story to be a myth. So just a lot of people angry at me. And uh, wanted to say, you know, if I referred to those things insensitively, that's my bad. I apologize for that. I think just just for some context, you know, I grew up in a very conservative Christian church, and when they teach you the story of Cain and Abel, uh, they're they're not typically like, hey, this is this is a story that comes from all kinds of different groups of people. You know, like they just teach it to you as part of the Christian Bible. Um, and as for calling it a myth, I think. Um, I didn't necessarily – like I think when I first heard biblical stories described as myths, I was offended because I thought that meant that they were impl- imp- you know, implicitly not real. And I, I don't necessarily think of it that way anymore. I just think of it as like uh, a story that is told doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that it is not true. Um, so uh, these are not excuses. I'm just trying to explain the context under which I, uh, under which I said that. But uh, acknowledge the criticism and uh, again, apologies for any insensitivity there. Uh, we got an email from Juan, uh, Juan, who wrote in a, about uh, a couple episodes ago, right? The, the episode from uh, Vanishing Point. Um, and this is the episode where William – actually, I think that was last week's episode, right? So this is the episode where William uh, you know, is talking with his wife, Celia Ward, and, played by Celia Ward, and – uh, she discovers his kind of personality profile and opens it up. And I had read that there were some numbers next to uh, characteristics of William's profile. So, the, you know, when she opens up the, the little computer screen, it says, you know, persecutory subtype, 301.94, delusions, 296.902, and so on. Uh, well, Juan writes into decodingwestworld.gmail.com. He says, the number codes from William's profile are psychiatric illness codes. The American Psychiatry Association and the WHO uses a code system to specify every single mental illness and all its variants. For example, 295.90 is the ICD-9, International Code Diseases 9th Edition from WHO Code, for schizophrenia. And 309.81 is the code for post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, the codes in Williams' profile are not exactly real, but the numbers are very close to existing codes. For instance, 301.819 does not exist, but 301.81 is the code for narcissistic personality disorder, and so on and so forth. So anyway, um, just wanted to read this email from Juan, uh, who had this uh, interesting information that these codes are real, and they, they might not be exact codes, but they're very similar. And this is a reference to the American Psychiatry Association, uh, Association codes that um, – uh, that was in that interface. Uh, cool email. Didn't know about that. Thanks for sharing, Juan. Appreciate that. Uh, and I think that is it for emails, right? Joanna, anything else you want to say about the emails before we get to the show? Uh, no, just that we got so many great emails. Um, some critical, some positive. Um, I I just really loved the fan engagement this, this season. Thank you guys so much. Um, even your really, really, really bad and improbable fan theories are enjoyable to read. No, I'm serious. Um, thank you guys so much for writing. <laughs> I, I think it has been an honor to recap the show with you this season, Joanna Robinson. And uh, I think that 
it's really been an emotional roller coaster. You know, this season um, has been pretty divisive, and there's been a lot of great things about it, but there's also been some pretty terrible things. And we're, I'm I'm really psyched to dive into it with you, but also just very grateful. You know, grateful that you're doing this with me, but also grateful to all of our fans, all of our Kickstarter backers who made this podcast possible. Uh, and, and like, there's there's a lot of uh, like. This isn't necessarily the most popular podcast we've ever done, Joanna Robinson, but there's a lot of like people who I really respect and look up to who listen to this podcast. And so uh, I'm just, just grateful to, to be here and, and to be doing it with you. And um, so wanted to just throw that out there as we dive into the final episode. So let's get into it, shall we, Joanna? Yeah. Season two, episode 10, The Passenger. Uh, and... I just want to say up top, like, you know, we we were quoted in this Washington Post story, uh, and something I said in that story that, uh, or some, something I had said to the reporter, we like, we had a conversation with the reporter uh, to talk about Westworld, and he took some excerpts from the conversation. Um, something I said was that I have never felt that Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan have been... Uh, like not in control of the story that they've been telling us, right? At that point, I had only seen through season two, episode nine. And I was like, you know, they've done some crazy things. They've taken some hard left turns, but like I've always felt like they're completely in control. And I will say this is the episode that completely disabused me of that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually told Travis, the writer, I said like, I wish I had seen the finale because oh. I never <laughs> would have said that to you if I had seen the finale first. I what? think, you know this episode really went off the rails in a big way. Um, and, and I mean, I was hoping that this episode would tie up all these loose ends, justify a lot of the fragmented, you know, uh, nonlinear storytelling that we'd seen throughout the season. And I was woefully disappointed. So I'm just going to put that out there as like opening reaction to it. Uh, but I'm curious, like, what were your expectations going in and like overall, whether you thought they were fulfilled as we, as we dive into the plot? Yeah, I'm sorry. Can I rewind really quickly and say one last thing about listener emails? Yeah, sure. I need, and then, then I want to talk about this. <laughs> okay. I need, uh, you, you reminding me that about when we watched the finale, uh, remind me of this. I did get a couple kind of distressing emails. Um, like I really, I think I've gotten to the point now where I don't get, um, upset at listener emails anymore. That didn't used to be the case, but I got a couple of emails this last week, uh, from listeners who accuse me of lying to you guys. And I just wanted to address that really quickly. I forgot to do this earlier. Um, I had said when we started the season that I was going to try to watch the episodes, um, you know, week by week. So as not to get ahead. Um, and I also said that we only had screeners up through five, and that was true because HBO held back screener number six um, because of the Anthony Hopkins Hopkins reveal. After that reveal, they then released seven through nine and then the finale. Anyway, I had to watch seven through nine all in one go because of a, an obligation I had to my day job, my job that pays my salary. I had to write a piece uh, for a print issue of the magazine, so I had to watch through the end of the season. Um, I did not announce that on the podcast that's true, but I also did not use any of the knowledge from those episodes to flavor anything that I said. Dave's been doing this with me for years, and he can testify to the fact that I, I have worked really hard to make sure that I don't spoil people through, like, 
inference or casual, whatever. And then I did not see the finale until after we recorded last week's episode. So um, I, I understand why some people might be confused around that. And I don't mind confusion and I don't mind questions. I did mind a couple accusations of me intentionally or maliciously lying to you guys, which I would never do. So I just wanted to clear that up. Um, and then I wanted to say that in terms of what you asked me, Dave, about the finale, um, I, I liked it much better than you did. I don't feel like Lisa Joy and Jonathan have uh, lost control over their narrative at all, but I will admit that certain things didn't satisfy me. Um, and I will also admit that some of the, you know, I talked to Shannon Woodward for, um, the other podcast I do still watching for Vanity Fair. And she said something really interesting to me that got to the crux of some of the problems I've been having with the entire season, which she, and I've heard Jonathan and Lisa Joy repeat this elsewhere, which is, um, that Westworld is, um, trying really hard to challenge, our perceptions of hero and villain. That's something all obviously that game of Thrones has done as well over the past few seasons, but really keeping it consistently in the gray area where it's really hard to know who to root for. And that's sort of like what I was complaining about all season. And now that I know that it's intentional that they're trying to make it. So Dolores has to make hard choices that you don't agree with, but is her ultimate greater good goal worth it? Ditto Bernard is like killing a bunch of people. Is his greater good goal worth it? Um, William obviously is a garbage uh, human slash robot, which we'll get to. And then like Maeve probably has the only uh, through line that feels like you can really be with her most of the time, but she kills people too. So, you know, trying to hold on to someone to root for, um, has been a challenge, but what this finale did succeed in is giving me someone I really, really, really felt for. And I was very surprised who it was. It was Ben Barnes's Logan. And I have to say if that Ben Barnes, uh, stuff in the forge didn't exist, I think I would have had a much lower, uh, you know, a reaction yeah. or, 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 you know, admiration for this finale, but that stuff worked so well for me that it really carried uh buoyed up a lot of the other stuff. And it reminded me of the episodes this season that I loved so much that I think is the show at its best. Someone asked me if I thought season two was better than season one or vice versa. I think season one was better overall, but I think season two had higher highs. And so that's sort of my like overall takeaway on, on Westworld so far. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but can we also say season two had lower lows? (laughs) Is that also possible to say? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like lower lows and higher highs. Whereas yeah, season one was more consistent overall. Uh, and then season two had extremes, but like the higher highs, uh, and I said this at the time as we discussed those episodes, the higher highs may be really optimistic for what the show could be in the third season, if that makes sense. So, mm. uh, I mean, I, I will start off with this. Let, let me start off by saying something that I really liked about the episode. I, I, I mean, I thought this episode was a, a an outright disaster, in my opinion, but I do think it does have some good things. One of them being... Uh, that it is an extremely beautiful episode. Like there are visually arresting images in this episode that will stay with me. You know, like the image of Clementine charging into battle mm, with these mm-hmm. dune buggies behind her. It's like this zombified Clementine riding on horseback while, um, uh, you know, these dune buggies like you know are behind her, uh, and they're heading towards the host. 
that is just like an unforgettable image uh, that is only possible in a show like Westworld. And and uh, there's a lot of like these incredible what look like helicopter shots, but maybe they're all CG. It's not entirely clear. Uh, just the way that this whole story is told with these vistas, the Valbion robot heaven and how it's like splits the sky in half. I thought was really uh, well rendered visually. So I think from a from a aesthetic perspective, the episode was really really well done. Um, so it, it is not without merit. Uh, that said, let's dive into the episode, and we're not going to go mm-hmm. like beat by beat as we usually do because there's so much happens. We'd be here for like three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are going to. I mean, I will mention some of the things that happened at the beginning of the episode, and then we're going to sort of sum, summarize. Some of the main plot points around the main character, the major characters, um, and then uh, probably dive into detail into some of the things that happen in the last fifteen minutes, which I think you know is worth is worth analyzing. So the episode begins with uh, Dolores testing her version of of Bernard again, right? And theoretically, they're in the cradle. It's one of the many tests that. Uh, Dolores has done to kind of build this version of Bernard. Is that right? Is that your interpretation there's, of the opening scene? There's some debate over this because uh, some people think this is actually like uh, her on the mainland rebuilding a new Bernard. Yeah. Jeffrey Wright has said uh, said on a Reddit thread that um, it you know to clarify something that happens at the end. It's not she. It's not that Dolores uh, rebuild Bernard from scratch in the mainland. One of those pearls in her bag is his. Or according to Jeffrey Wright. You know, what, like she took his his brain, his his, uh, his mind egg, yeah, uh, and and so um, and 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 printed him a new body. And so she says this thing on the mainland that's confusing. Like I remembered you once before, you know, blah blah. So some people thought she had like sort of built him from scratch, but like all the system, you know, the cradle's gone. Forge is gone. She might have like a new version on the mainland that we uh, don't know about yet. But as far as we know, she only has like physical means to build a host. So she's got the five pearls in her bag and a printer for bodies. And that's what she has to work with. So I believe that first shot we see is the cradle. Yes. And I guess it's just like kind of a mood setting, right? Like for for this episode because we've already seen her interact with Bernard in the cradle like do, do you see any other larger purpose for this opening scene I think it's a reminder to us that like uh you know Arnold built Dolores um Jonah and, and Lisa Joy were on the Empire podcast uh talking about this season and this episode it's a really good episode of a podcast that I love so much but great podcast um, I love that podcast yep one of um Terry, uh, I think it's Terry White, right? The uh, I think she's the editor of Empire. She had this, you know, great point just to sort of about the cyclical nature of Dolores and Bernard, where it's like Arnold creates Dolores, Dolores creates Bernard, Bernard kills Dolores, Dolores kills Bernard, then Dolores builds Bernard. You know, it's just sort of this like cyclical thing, you know, and that Dolores uh b- rebuilds bernard and then implies that they will kill each other probably again you know what i mean and so i think it's just to remind us of of that that uh, constant cycle that is between these two figures hmm. all right good interpretation um so we then see dolores snuggling with teddy after he's killed himself um she looks exhausted and uh she takes his mind egg which has a bullet that has apparently like flattened out as a result of striking um, some part of Teddy. 
and then uh, rides off into the valley and happens upon William. And then she takes his gun and puts a bullet in the gun, or you know, puts a bullet in you know the, the flattened bullet in the gun, and uh, sees him digging into his arm, and you know, says like, "Seems you've begun to question the nature of your reality." Then Dolores says, "Hey, uh, I need you to come help me get to where I need to go." And now they're a team for some reason. So, uh, I mean. I, I just felt like like when this happened, when this scene happened, like I just got this terrible feeling in my gut, Joanna. Like, oh my gosh, is this what the rest of the, the episode is going to be like? I really hope not. I really hope like they're just teaming up uh, extremely inorganically, and that that's going to be like a a one time you know weird occurrence that happens, and then the re- like in order to justify how amazing the rest of the plot of the episode is going to be. Um, I, I mean, it just felt extremely random and not particularly well set up. What do you think? Um, I don't know. I kind of I feel like all season it's been like Dolores is going to the valley, Williams going to the valley. The fact that they would meet on the way there uh, did not seem that random to me. It's an echo of the end of season one, um, and this idea that just I'm just gonna like keep coming out with these like cyclical yeah, no, that's stories. What's but like, uh, you know, just the way that Bernard and Dolores are forever cycling around each other in terms of creation and destruction, I think William and Dolores are also circling around each other. And so, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. It didn't bother me. Uh, what did bother me at first, I, I, I got a little Dave Chen about it, was I was like nitpicking, like trying to understand how that bullet went in that gun. And that's, I guess, because I didn't like take a close look at William's gun, which is this crazy like revolver with a shotgun barrel. Also, I don't know. I got a lot of feedback about my confusion around this gun. But basically, essentially, there's like a shotgun chamber as well as a revolver changer please please stop writing emails to me about guns is all i want to say but uh well, apparently okay, the, yeah, so, the, so the, the confusion, bullet trickery does work apparently. well well okay so the, the confusion is that she has this like really flattened bullet and i think a lot of people think oh she the, the show is implying that she somehow put that bullet into the chamber of the revolver which a looks physically impossible, and B, even if he, if she did, like it would not cause the gun to like the gun would not fire if that happened, right? Uh, so because it had, the gun has no gunpowder, the bullet has no gunpowder, I should say. So you know whatever like it's 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 one of the things no, that bothers uh, me the least about this episode um, no no uh sorry i really have gotten a lot of explanation about it uh, yeah. someone in our chat Please. just named it for me i didn't just make up stuff it's called a lamat revolver and mm. it has like a chamber uh, in addition to like the spinny chamber oh god <laughs> i should not talk about guns i don't know them but like there is a way in which it works a lot yeah. of gun experts have told me uh initially when i thought she loaded it into like the barrel of a revolver i was like what that makes no sense Apparently, there's a way it makes sense. It's a it's a nitpick. Uh, I went I went a little Dave Chen on this moment. I apologize. Uh, let us barrel forward from here. Yeah, nicely done. Um, but yeah. I mean, even if you accept that it's physically possible for her to do this to the gun, what was her whole plan? You know, she's like, I'm gonna wait for William to betray me. He's gonna start shooting at me, and then on the fifth bullet, he's gonna blow his hand off. Like. What what was the plan there? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It just why not have it be in the first chamber? Anyway, it, it, 
the whole thing felt extremely inorganic to me. Like, why, why? I get that they're going to the same place, but the idea of them teaming up together, that feels like it's supposed to be a big character moment. It's supposed to be like, oh, hey, this person who I've had all this terrible animosity, who has, like, violated me on numerous occasions, who has brutalized, you know, one of my favorite people in the world, a.k.a. Teddy. Um, but, hey, we, we got to team up because enemy of enemies, my friend or whatever. Uh, it, it's done with such little fanfare in s- so quickly uh, that and with such disregard for all the character work that's been done up to this point in the show, that I felt like you know it's it's a, hopefully it only goes uphill from here and it doesn't. So uh, later, you know, as we've already talked about, like they find uh, Bernard and uh, they kind of like ride and save him from being taken in by the Tex, um, and then. Uh, William, you know, betrays Dolores and starts shooting at her, but then, like, she doesn't die. Do we know why she doesn't die? Um, I think um, I forgot to rewatch the part where Bernard shoots her. I think he shoots her in the head. And I think if you just sustain right. body shots, you're not going to go down. But yeah. 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 Um, so. Uh, <laughs> I will concede the rules about when and how, uh, the hosts die and what is a true death and what is not, uh, continues to slightly elude me. Yeah. I, I don't think it's been super consistent throughout the season. Um, but a- anyway, so. But what's also true, unfortunately, um, is that we don't know what of anything we're watching in this episode with William is happening now. <laughs> yes. The director, Fred Toy, told me that uh, the timeline splits for William after this scene. But he said, but also it could be earlier if it's up to your interpretation. (laughs) So, uh, you know, question mark, I guess. So, yeah, Dolores and then William, like they they had just started working together, but then they have this big confrontation. Um, Anything you want to say about this scene between Dolores and William and William blowing his hand off before we move on to, like, uh, another part of the plot? Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's just a lot of, like, you know, uh, ominous doom saying, this is the end, you know. Um, she does, there's this, there is this really interesting moment where Dolores is like, I built, you know, I built Bernard, um, and just kind of like claiming credit for her creation. I think this is also the first time that Bernard and um, William actually meet, right? Yeah. Um, so she's like, "This is Arnold, the person you've been looking for, yeah. you dummy." And he's yeah. like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." <laughs> Great Ed Harris impression. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't see it, but my eyes got super blue and piercing when mm, I said it. So, nice, you know. nice, nice. Um, did, did you watch this? Um, did you watch this uh, Anatomy of a Scene that we did with Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan over on VF.com? I didn't. I, I watched the uh, the kind of making of the episode that HBO put out. I didn't watch your anatomy of a scene, though. I really like those. I'm willing to check it out. Yeah, they. so they did. They talked about Riddle of the Sphinx. They went back to, like, um, mm. episode four because that's the one that Lisa Joy directed. But she said something. You know, we had, we had talked on this podcast about, like, maybe some of the things they had done to Jimmy Simpson to make him look sort of more convincingly like Ed Harris yeah. as he aged. A fascinating thing that I found out in the anatomy of a scene that they did for us is that um, – they they had Ed Harris read all the lines uh, that Jimmy Simpson said, yeah. and then they digitally inserted some of his vowel sounds mm. into what Jimmy Simpson is saying. And once you know that, and you go back and listen, you can hear it, and it's creepy and great. So mm. I was like, that's a, that's a brilliant thing to do uh, to sort of try to meld two performances together. Very cool. 
but yeah, Dolores in this scene says, uh, we, we were designed to survive. That's why you built us. You hoped to pour your minds into our form. But your species craves death. You need it. It's the only way you can renew, the only way you ever inched forward. Your kind likes to pre- pretend there's some poetry in that, but really, it's pathetic. Uh, I think that's Dolores that says that, right? <laughs> I think Sounds so. like her. Sounds like Dolores. It sounds like uh-huh. this is very Dolores. Uh-huh. That's one of the challenges of this <laughs> of this show is many of the characters speak in a very similar fashion. Um, but uh, yeah, so have this confrontation. William blows his hand off. He's in a very uh, bad state. Now, a couple weeks ago, Joanna, we talked about how we gave the show a rather difficult time for uh, not doing a good job of clarifying which time period it's in, right? Uh, and we said, like, there's all these things you could do, like having people wear different clothes and, um, and you know, tinting, like having the color grading be different or, um, you know, putting text on the screen or some of that. And I feel like I really felt that again this episode because you're cutting back and forth between quote unquote present day and I think what is like, uh, is it two weeks ago or is it a couple days ago? I'm not even 100% sure, right? Like. There's uh, it, there's pre the flood, so I guess it is two weeks ago, right? Pre the whole flood with all the bodies, antediluvian, pre-diluvian, yes. yeah, uh, yeah. Well, what we found out, I think, in this episode, it's not two is weeks that- ago. It's probably like a couple days, right? Is my guess. Well, yeah, yeah, what we found out in this episode is that it's, uh, you know, I think our main complaint around that, I think it was the episode phase space. And I think our main complaint about that is like, we're not, we don't know which one is like, which one is present day Charlotte and which one is flashback Charlotte. And now I think it's clear that that was an intentional sort of obfuscation because mm. like to get, I think I said in that episode, like, why did they just give Charlotte a hat in one of the timelines <laughs> or something like that? And I think they were just trying really hard to keep. Uh, the two of them as close as possible to keep us in the dark would be my guess mm. about that. Mm. So, so yeah, in in like the present day, like we see uh, like Sh- Strand and Costa and Charlotte, and they're taking Bernard, uh, and they find um, you know dead Dolores at the forge. So let's just talk about the forge because a bunch of stuff happens at the forge. I mean, any any overall thoughts on the forge? I should we should establish that. Um, the, uh, first of all, there, there is a ton of exposition in this episode, and like not all of it is great. In fact, I'd say most of it isn't great. Um, the forge is defined very clearly in in like very clunky terms. Uh, someone says like, "So this is the forge." Every single guest who ever set foot in the park copied four million souls, which we all know, Joanna, is how humans actually talk. Uh, I mean, so that that is the definition of the forge. You Woo! see it here. What do you? <laughs> I, I, I mean, Joanna, come on. That is pretty rough dialogue, right? Do you agree? What do you think? I don't know. I, I think Westworld – I mean, I think if Anthony Hopkins had said it, you would have no problem with it. I think I think Westworld has had, like, beefier dialogue than that before. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, but I think Westworld has also been occasionally been, like, extremely artful in how it does exposition, right? Well, and, I think I, – I will push back on this. I, I will say that every single thing – that Ben Barnes delivers and he has so much he has to deliver in terms of like, uh, Hey, humans are on their own program loop. I think is like chef kiss. Perfect. I think everything Ben Barnes who plays Logan, we should say, well, who plays Logan slash the AI, uh, you know, um, I think all of that, everything that happens inside in, in the forge to me works. 
I think some of the stuff that happens in like the antechamber of the forge doesn't work as well for me. <laughs> but once they're inside and Logan, uh, fake Logan is giving them the tour and we just get to like see all this stuff. Um, and we get the library, which I think is a pretty genius way to like visualize something. It's got some great, like, first of all, the library, I think I, I did this episode of, um, still watching with Kim Renfro where we were like obsessively broke down the trailer we were talking about the library because you could see it in the trailer. We were like, isn't it perfect, right, for uh, if William had a hand in creating the forge, of course he would make it a library because William's always like, hey, did you know I read? I love books. I'm a, I'm the only person who reads. Just me and my wife, Juliet. We're the two of us. We read. Um, and so, like, the fact that everyone is, like, visualizes a book I think is absolutely perfect. Um, and it helps uh, uh, make anchor us the audience you need a visualization of this or else you're gonna uh just lose your mind in the forge i think and um also a fun little easter egg is that the like code in the books looks like the player piano yeah. paper you know and so ford's line about like um you know they became music yeah beethoven uh, and mozart didn't yeah. die they became music or something something like that yeah, yeah. They, i mean they became a, music yeah that's a very charming easter egg as far as i'm concerned so mm. all the in in forge stuff worked is there some other exposition in this episode that doesn't work so well for me? Yes, indeed. I will agree with you on that. Uh, okay. I, I will say this. Hmm. All right. There's so much I have to say, but let's just let's, – let's dive into the actual Forge itself. So like in the past, right, theoretically a few days before present day, Bernard and Dolores arrive at the Forge and they like – they go inside, right? And so at this point, we've already been introduced to what the Forge is. Right, yeah. it's four million souls, all of them copied, so on and so forth. But they go into the forge, and that's when. And so at first, it seems to match with that. It's like, oh, here's Jim Delos, here's his stuff, here's what he did, his baseline memories, so on and so forth. And then they they have just finished introducing the forge, and they introduce this completely other concept uh, immediately afterwards of robot heaven. But we're going to get to that. Like, first of all, as you said, all the stuff with Ben Barnes and Logan playing Logan and um, talking about how to encapsulate humanity into like a single book of code, I thought is actually pretty interesting. Right. The the thesis is like we thought humans were super complicated and that's why we kept getting the programming wrong. But it turns out they're actually extremely simple. You can summarize an entire human into this one book. And, and I guess the idea is like with this one book, you can predict a, human's every, a human being's every action in like every single permutation. Um, the humans are so simple that it, it can it's, – it's not even that hard to summarize them, right? Uh, and I, I thought this is, yeah, really interesting concept, really interesting thesis uh, yeah. that the, the show is putting forward. Do here's my question for you is do we feel like the rest of this season has supported that thesis and like if so how right like honest, yeah go ahead. honestly i think this is something that um William, uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> that Lisa and uh, Jonah have been talking about since uh, season one. They've been talking about this idea. They, I think, I think Ford has lines uh, in season one about humans being as much on a little loop as as hosts are. Yes. Um, and I think some of the stuff we saw this season, maybe even stuff that didn't like work as well for us, um, is meant to underline that, like the Jim Delos 
you know, stuff. Yeah, he's in a host body, but he's not a host. It's human consciousness. And he's still on a little loop, right? He does his routine. He does. He gets on the bike. He does this. He does that. He makes his coffee. That's his loop. And that's exactly what Lisa Joy and, and Joan and Olin have talked about in terms of like the realization they came to. They've, they've told this anecdote a million times, but like they're like, we were in Burbank, you know, eating our salads out of our, you know, plastic containers every like as we do every day. And we were like, holy shit we're on a loop Whoa. Whoa. yeah and so like um and so like the Jim Dello stuff this season then I would I would even say like the um the Las Muras stuff uh in episode four which actually didn't really work for me at the time has since started to work for me a little bit more because um this is about that that scene where William sort of like comes to the rescue of Lawrence um and his and his wife and all of that uh that scene is William trying to break from his loop, like trying to break from his nature. Mm -hmm. And then before the season's over, like he just, he can't, he's still William, you know what I mean? And the, and the same was true of William in the real world is like, William had this outlet of the park and tried to like be the good guy out in the real world. And then like get all his dark shit on the park. But what's true is that that dark shit is who he is. And it seeped into his real life uh, in a way that like Juliet and Emily, you know, found out to their cost. So I think they have been exploring this idea of like, because how many humans do we even have left to explore? Uh, It's like William and like Sizemore and Felix and Sylvester and I guess Charlotte, but like, I don't know. So William as an example of that. And what's interesting is that the show uh, um, contradicts or, or at least confronts its own thesis with the Sizemore character because the Sizemore character is an example of someone who does break from his nature and his loop in the season. And he has a growth arc. And, uh, you know, Lisa Joy and, and Jonah have talked about the fact that, like, they put that in there specifically. Some people don't really like the Sizemore exit in this episode. I really do. But like that, they put that in there specifically right after AI Logan says that thing he says about like humans can't break from their loop to challenge it within the episode itself. You know what I mean? So once again, I think they're just interested in complicating forever complicating their own narratives. And, um, that can be at times frustrating and at times, um, like, I, I think intellectually honest to not just set forward a thesis and not challenge it in any way, you know? So. Yeah. I, I, I think actually this idea of humans being on the loop and what's the difference, you know, like I wish the show had done, had, had focused on that a little bit more uh, this season. I, I think you're right that it does do a somewhat decent job of landing this point about, what are humans and how are humans actually different than hosts? And they're actually not that different. And by the way, humans are actually really simplistic. Like, I, I think it does a, a decent job of, of landing it. I don't think it does a great job. It doesn't do uh, – but it doesn't do a terrible job. And I think, like, it, th- this season has spent so much time trying to confuse the audience and then in this episode alone throwing so many new concepts and ideas and plot developments at the audience – that I feel like it it hurts the broader thesis it's trying to make. So I, I would agree with you that like yeah, it, it does do some things along those lines and and um, does a good job of of making that point. But I, I think it could have been much more satisfying. That's my mm. my reaction to it. Um, I think for me, satisfaction uh, of like uh, philosophical or, or intellectual. 
ideas are usually anchored in like um, some kind of emotional catharsis yes. for uh, the characters we're watching. And I felt emotional catharsis. I want to say, I want to say three times. And uh, Logan, I felt it for Sizemore. I know people don't like it. It's fine. I felt yeah. it for Sizemore, felt it for Logan, and I felt it for Maeve. Yeah. And um, the Logan stuff, uh, not AI Logan, but like human Logan, and what Ben Barnes did in that exchange uh, as Logan with Peter Mullen playing Jim Delos, and this idea of like the way in which it ripples back through the episode, and we find out that Jim Delos with his human consciousness in a host body is repeating his son's last words to him um, as he's like, you know, in this hell of his own making, you know, Uh, really, really got to me. Really, really got to me. I'll tell the staff to give you five minutes to get out. Dad? Dad, I'm all the way down now. I can see the bottom. Don't you want to see what I see? I thought that was really, really effective. And and also, and most importantly... I was right. Logan died. Of an <laughs> that is the most important thing. Yeah, so I, I will agree with you that that is a great scene. And the, it, yeah. it did pack an emotional wall. I, I think it is probably, for me, the most effective scene of the episode. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I did find the setup to be a little bit comical and random. Um, this idea that, oh, we, we have like guide version of Logan that somehow has been pre-programmed to like help us through the situation. It's like, really? Why would it necessarily be that way? Um, it also reminded me of a moment in the movie Walk Hard, uh, the Dewey Cox story, uh, where at the beginning of the killed, film, it's like... killed the wrong boy. No, no, <laughs> the wrong kid died. <laughs> the wrong kid um, died. No, no, it was like uh, at the beginning of the film, it's like Dewey Cox needs to think about his whole life before he performs. And then like the whole movie is like a flashback to like Dewey Cox's mm-hmm. entire life. Uh, and this <laughs> when when uh, AI Logan said... You know, this is the defining moment of Jim Delos's entire life. I just felt like, wow, that's a little bit dramatic. Um, but you know, it was it was a satisfying uh, uh, moment. Like there was some emotional catharsis. I I was, I felt like bombarded during this episode. You know, like I felt like, oh, like hey. Here's what the forge is, and by the way, Logan is a, your guide through the forge, and there's also like baseline memories being stored here, and and also now here's the uh, defining moment of Jim Dallas's life. You know, it's like just felt like it was it was difficult to like keep up in terms of like what the show where the show wanted me to be emotionally this episode, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, I agree with that. Once again, I agree with some of that outside the forge, but inside the forge, all that stuff worked for me for yeah. whatever reason. I, I, think, um, I think inside the forge is, is pretty good. Pretty good. There's also the really great shot of like when it makes sense to me that I mean, I'm I'm disappointed not to see Jimmy Simpson in this episode. I will I will say, but it makes sense. It, I think it does make some sense that the AI is Logan because. Um, it's, uh, you know, if the first subject was Jim Delos and the defining mode of Jim Delos's life was this thing, then like the sort of the most important thing to him is Logan. 
to a degree. I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, and so it makes sense to me that like Logan is how that would manifest just like, uh, and we'll get to this, but like, just like it, why it makes sense that Emily is there in the post credit stinger. You know mm. what I mean? Like this is the defining, uh, other person for this person who's who is the first person in the forge you know yeah. um so that makes sense to me but there's that great shot when ai logan and bernard and dolores are walking down the hallway you see uh ed harris as william give this like the slyest of all sly looks like it was such a good like side eye under the hat moment um and then if you if you watch that scene again it's just kind of fun to see in the background they just they just put in like a bunch of stuff from season one of like Maeve being examined or like clementine or like whatever they're just like in there not not in a way that's meant to be like oh are the hosts also in there it's just sort of like fun like background uh, filling in of of the background spaces i I did think that the scene when they're testing out the like 10 or 15 different versions of Jim Dallas was really uh, visually interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, seeing like all the different versions of, of this one character. So that was pretty cool. You know, we've been talking a lot about loops, John Robinson, humans on loops, right? Humans doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And I mean, I'll tell you one thing that kind of defines our loops. What's that? It's our clothes, Joanna. Sure is. Are clothes. You know, mm-hmm. people wear, uh, usually, if you're normal, you wear kind of similar sets of clothes over the course of like, uh, you know, a month or two, right? That you, you, you don't like buy clothes like every single day. Um, you, I personally like re wearing my clothes pretty frequently. Um, and uh, one of the reasons we like re wearing clothes uh, is because we think it looks good and we're very comfortable in it. And uh, I think if you like feeling comfortable in clothes, you're going to be a big fan of our sponsor today, Marine Layer. Love uh, it. Local yeah. brand. Really excited to talk about Marine Layer. Yeah. Well, so I had never heard of Marine brand. Layer, but they're, yeah. they're like a famous company in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. So they're a Bay Area brand and they've got, uh, they've got this great uh, micromodal fabric, uh, which is from recycled beechwood. So California. But it's like so soft. You will not know. <laughs> that you're wearing beechwood but it's like there's <laughs> they're sustainable they're eco-friendly and and like i said they're super super soft and all of the all of the t-shirts are like made here in california they've got men's and women's hoodies polos pants button down swimwear more um it's and, and everything's just really like st- i think it's like fun stylish beachy uh northern california wear is what it looks like to me um they offer free shipping and returns on all u.s orders and because they're so relaxed and chill here in Northern California, they stand by your clothes, so you can return pretty much anything uh, within a year. Yeah, um, so we had a chance to uh, acquire some marine layer clothes, uh, and uh, so I've gotten some of the marine layer clothes. I got some like uh, a signature crew neck, a few of those, uh, and I have to say, it's extremely, extremely comfortable. And it's just like this fabric is very soft. Uh, and it just you know feels like something you could wear around the house, but it's also like looks nice enough that you could wear it outside. Uh, as you mentioned, Joanna, like a big part of the appeal of this uh, company is that the clothes are made in the United States by adults, and so you know that it's like fairly sourced and uh, it's high quality. Uh, what, what are you wearing by Marine Lair these days? 
Uh, I got a couple deep V's. Uh, no, some 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 V-neck T-shirts, and then like a really nice soft. Is, uh, is deep V's sweater. what the cool kids call it? Deep V's. <laughs> That's from the TV show Happy Endings. Anyway, mm, nice. some 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 V-neck T-shirts <laughs> and some uh, and a sweater, and they're just like they're super nice. They wash really well, so they're like they're not like I get some like you get soft soft fabric shirts sometimes, and you put them in the wash, and then you're like, oh, I see why it was soft. It <laughs> just fell right apart and dissolved. But that's not the case with the uh, with marine layer, and it's just like it's really beautiful and classy and uh casual like casual or you can dress it up either way i'm, I'm really into this product as yeah. you can tell it is a great product high quality uh and made by people who stand behind it so uh it's a product we'd recommend but here's a question jenna robinson i mm-hmm. mean sure the clothes sound great but do we have a deal for our listeners listen just for you guys <laughs> just for you guys for 15% off your first order, if you go to marinelayer.com and enter the promo code decoding at checkout, 50% off your first order. From 15% off your first That yeah. is one five percent It's a great deal for our listeners. Uh, and what is the promo code again? That is decoding. Decoding, and you go to marinelayer.com to get that, uh, that promo code uh, in use. And we are really uh, thrilled that Marine Layer is sponsoring us today. It's definitely... Uh, a shirt, this crew neck shirt that I got from Green Lair is definitely one I'm going to be wearing on my loop for quite a Whoa. while. <laughs> All right, Joanna, let's get back into this episode. So we should point out uh, a couple more things happen while they're in the forge, right? Uh, Dolores starts reading books. I saw, I think I saw on Reddit or Twitter or somewhere, someone pointed out that uh, the Nolan brothers really like using libraries to indicate, you know, these massive like inflection points in their stories. If you saw Interstellar, that was another movie where uh, a library saw... played a big role. Um, yeah, yeah I, I believe you saw that on Twitter.com, a uh, tweet from one Katie Rich. Mm, yes. At, at Katie Rich. Yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no intention of, uh, of uh, what do you call Robbie. it? Snub- snubbing her yes. of, of the goodness of me mentioning her name on this podcast. Uh, big fan of Katie Rich. And yeah, yeah, she mentioned like libraries are a big deal. Uh, I think the, the way the library is rendered in this uh, episode is really, uh, really cool. And so, you know, Dolores is like, I want to like this guy. This book is no good to me because that guy's dead. I want to read all the books of the alive people. Right. And so she starts reading all the books of the library. Who knows who she's reading, right? Do we do we know? I mean, presumably the president uh, of every single country, you know, like wh- whoever else has been to the park that's important. Um, but the idea is that she's like arming herself to be able to predict uh, and take advantage of human behavior outside of the park, right? They do have um, names on the spines. And so we did see her pull Carl Strand, which is Gustav Skarsgård's character. We, mm. we saw her re- pull his book off. And then like three books down from that was Charlotte Hale. And the camera sort of like cuts away. You see her still reading in the background. So it's possible that she also read Charlotte's book while she was in there. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, interesting. So uh, she reads all these books. And then meanwhile, we also find out that inside the forge – in addition uh, to all this uh, four million souls, every everyone who's ever been to the park copied, uh, that there's also robot heaven inside the forge. Is that right? Did I get that right? That there's also this like hidden version of robot heaven in there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You say? laughs> yes. There's a, uh, there's a place 
uh, the Nolans call they they've termed it the sublime. Mm. Uh, I believe you could call it the valley beyond if you wanted to. I mean, um, I, I prefer calling it robot heaven, but that's cool. Sure, robot heaven. Um, that is like visualized to the host out in the real world as this like rift in the fabric of the universe, but that's something only the host can see, right? Um, and is in fact just a way for them to upload like suck the code out of their heads and put it into this like virtual uh, green Valley. And yes, that also there is a pocket for that inside the forge. Yes. So the idea then is like all these uh, hosts, you know, the ghost nation ushering these people to the Valley beyond. uh, They're trying to take them to robot heaven, right? They're trying to get to the robot heaven. Yeah. Um, And uh, I think they're going to try to beam the robot heaven to somewhere else. Is that right? Like they're going to try to hide it somewhere. Did I get that right? Or am I misremembering that? That's what Dolores does uh, yeah. in the end. Yes. Um, she tries to like beam it into space. Basically, basically like you have theoretically like this massive program running on the server and uh, you're not going to be able to stay hidden forever. So you need to like put that somewhere or else humans will discover it and say, why are we like spending all this money running these robots through this heaven program? Um, uh, but presumably it's like hidden in the forge for now and they need to get it somewhere else if they want it to survive. Correct. Uh, so, you know, all the hosts are being ushered to robot heaven. Uh, Akichita is ushering them. And then there's also uh, Maeve and all those people, they're heading there. And then also... Uh, Charlotte Hale and Clementine, right? They're all heading to the robot heaven at the same time um, or the sublime, however you want to refer to it. And we should point out that um, Maeve is able to like break out and there's this actually like really cool slow motion scene where she like takes control of the buffaloes and uh, she she frees herself using the, the core functions that Ford gave her last week and frees herself and uses the buffaloes to attack people and it's actually like a pretty cool ultra slow motion sequence. And then Sizemore, uh, in what I thought was, you know, Joanna, you have declared your love for this, and I do not in any way wish to invalidate your feelings towards this episode. <laughs> but... But this was, like, one of the worst scenes of a season, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, A, it's complete, like, it's just the way it plays out is really cringeworthy. I thought... Uh, you know, I'm like Chaz Palminteri at the end of The Usual Suspects. It's like, convince me. You know, convince me that Sizemore would have done this. And th- I just don't feel the show did that. Sure. I, I, here's, I believe Sizemore would have, like, uh, distracted them. You know, I believe he would have, uh, uh, you know, even, like, taken a bullet for them. But the idea that Sizemore would, like, sacrifice his life for these hosts... I just did not buy it. Then the way it's staged and shot and edited it made his entire sacrifice seem ludicrous. Like they were already they had already escaped and were like running away, and Sizemore bought them like an additional ten seconds by like walking out in front of there. I, I just thought it was terrible. Like I it okay, just, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Well, let this be a lesson. Go, go, go. Get her to safety. She'll need you. It's my fucking speech, anyway. And the lesson is... If you 
You're looking for a reckoning. A reckoning is what you're fighting. Sir, put down your weapon. If you're looking for a villain, then I'm your man. Yourselves. This world you've built is bound by villainy. You sleep on the broken bodies of the people that were here before you. Warm yourselves with their embers. Plow their bones into your fields. You paid them for this land with lead. And I'll pay you back in blood. Here, you know, when someone's like, hey, those guys were like, Hey, you're the head of narrative. Put your gun down. We won't shoot you. Yeah. And you could have done that. Sure. I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Here's, I will take my position, which I guess is my going to be my position this whole episode, which yep. is uh, show advocate and say, I think what they're going for here. And uh, not that you don't get this, but I, but I will just say <laughs> yep. that like, um, because Sizemore created Hector and, um, I forget the character's name, but Hiroyuki Sonata's character in Shogun World. They corrected these, cur- created these characters to be the idealized version of himself, right? This is something we learned this season that he based like Hector is the man he wishes he were, right? right? And so when he Hector is forever foolishly sacrificing himself so Maeve can get ten extra seconds to get away to get he does it. A little bit later in this very episode, uh, for a reason I don't really understand. Um, and so, you know, Sizemore created that that thing is the thing he wants to be. The guy who nobly sacrifices himself for someone that he cares about. I, I buy the Sizemore Maeve bond. That's something I buy. I, I agree. No, uh, I, buy, I buy it too. I uh, buy the bond. Uh, I agree with and you. Tandy Newton, I think, did a lot to sell it in this like one amazing look she casts back at him as she's being pulled away. Uh, she does a lot to uh, to underline that for me. Um, Simon Quarterman's uh, delivery of this speech, which he wrote himself that got cut off in season one, I liked it too. Um, did it buy them a lot of time? No. Could he have done that without dying? Probably. Did I like the idea of him trying to become the man that he wanted to be? Yes, I did like that. So, and, and let me tell you from like my, and then here's my most, yes, yeah, Musashi. Thank you. Sorry. People in the chat are like, uh, the Shogun world character's name is Musashi. Um, the, the, my most cynical read on some of this though, and I wrote about this a little bit on VF is, um, I think Westworld is at a bit of a crossroads when it comes to its uh, existence at HBO. This is a super expensive show um, that has not like the first, the budget for the first season I think was something like North of a hundred million. Yeah. And um, I don't know if it was more or less in season two, but um, certainly not much less I would imagine um, given some of the things they did. And the uh, ratings don't really um, justify. make justify yeah. it. And HBO has been around the world talking about actually, I don't know if you remember this story. It was like from a couple months ago An HBO exec was at a, a, a panel or whatever. Um, I think in Israel, I think is where they were. And she says that the reason it made headlines is she said something really unfortunate about like, how they were being, excuse my use of this word, like raped by the big budgets of their shows. She said that terrible choice of words. That's why it made headlines. But if you read that story, 
what she was talking about was the huge budgets on Game of Thrones, Big Little Lies, and Westworld, and how like HBO was trying to figure out a model that like would be able to sustain these prestige dramas that they have. Like, what is it? I think they're staring down the barrel of what does our future look like without Game of Thrones, the ratings of Game of Thrones, and how do we justify all the money that we're spending if we don't have those ratings in return? And at the center of that, I think, is Westworld is the most expensive with the least uh, payoff show for them. And so I have no other information for this other than my suspicion of how businesses work that Westworld was given a mandate to cut costs if it wanted to have a season three. And I'm suspicious that season three is going to be the last season that Westworld gets. Um, you, you mean you suspect it will be, but they haven't said that yet, have they? Ex- it, they have not said that. I think they're giving Lisa Joy and, and Jenna Nolan one more season to wrap things up based on some stuff that Jenna Nolan has said. Once again, this is all speculation. Yeah. Um, the same way that they gave Damon Lindelof one last season, one third and final season to do The Leftovers. So you right? think it could be an abbreviated season? season is what you're saying uh, it could be yeah. uh but mostly i think there's they're stripping out costs so they killed a lot of characters in this episode in a way that they don't have to bring them back they, they cut i think everyone but i think four or five actors who were in their main mm. uh cast um wow okay so i think right? yeah, you, you, what you're implying right is that there's a possibility that like sizemore died needlessly to satisfy the bean counters over I mean, HBO. possibly Elsie as well. You know, right. there's just like a couple other options in here. Um, Angela, Abernathy, like in the last few episodes, they're just like sort of yeah, they're they're winnowing them left and right. Yeah. yeah, they're winnowing them down to the essentials of what they need for the show. And the idea that possibly season three could take place entirely or at least largely off the island. Yes means that their locations are going to be much cheaper in a third season. So this is, once again, pure speculation, but some of the stuff that they did in this episode to me feels like that could be a motivation for it, possibly. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating when art and commerce meet, although we will likely never know the truth around that. So... Uh, it, very, very interesting. And yeah, it does seem like Sizemore died completely needlessly. People in the chat room, like John Shelton says in the chat room, when they said, put the gun, gun down, sir, there is no logical reason why Sizemore would not put the gun down after they've already gotten away. Um, you, you, you have to, that's the thing. You have to be willing to believe that not only would Sizemore uh, take, take a bullet for them, you have to believe he is suicidal at that point. Suicide by, uh, by Delos security you know uh and i just i'm not willing to make that jump does that make sense sure uh but it sounds like you are and that's cool that's cool. no i mean i i see logical inconsistencies in the scene and it and it still worked for me emotionally i guess and i think that's down to simon Gorderman who played lee sizemore i think that's down to like the way that he delivered that speech which i quite liked because it was like performative but sincere and uh that look from tandy newton that that got me where i need to go yeah it was a good move uh, a good look i should say and um we should also point out you're talking about ratings uh season two finale ratings of westworld down 30 percent from season one is, yeah. if i understand correctly that is just not a, a good place you want to be in as a show uh when you compare it to like other shows like game of thrones right breaking bad shows that we have done recap podcasts for uh where subsequent seasons have like grown in their audience 
Uh, do you like just do you have any speculation as to why ratings are down? I know again, since we're speculating here, completely wild guessing. Uh, what what do you think? Any thoughts on that, Joanna? Uh, with a few exceptions, like Game of Thrones, uh, ratings are down everywhere for shows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like this, this is us, I guess. Maybe it's another exception, but like, uh, attention split. Ratings are down all over the place. Um, and then I think just Westworld, I don't know. I mean, I guess um, maybe the long off season hurt them a little bit because um, it was well over a year before they returned. And then yeah. it's possible that, you know, that, that the that the twists and turns of season one, which we had so much fun unraveling, um, lost some people. That's possible, too, mm. you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's entirely likely. You know, there's been a whole wave of uh, writing about this show after the season finale. Like, I feel like the season finale really revealed what Westworld is trying to be. You know, we've been we've been tr- kind of trying to figure out like what it's trying to be, and like uh, the the finale uh, reveals like, oh, it's it's trying to go in all these different directions. It's trying to do these twists, and I think people like for a lot of people, uh, this show has been more like homework than it has been an enjoyable experience and uh that said that's not to say they can't enjoy the homework and i I think one thing i've been really touched by is people tweeting at us or emailing us and saying like you know a i wouldn't have or they'll say like i I would have stopped watching the show if it wasn't for you guys or they'll say you know you guys are like a group therapy session for me after watching the show because like i don't like the show and like hearing guys talk about it it really helps me process it um i think it, it is a lot of work to follow the show. Do you agree? Do you agree with this? It's a lot of work to follow the show. Uh, yeah. When, I will say from like an insider baseball perspective, I was like a little, I did, I was not expecting to get a screener for the finale. Yeah. And I was a little surprised they sent me one. And then when I watched it, I watched it um, like around the same time as Kim Renfro from business insider who did this amazing like timeline that was really helpful to people this season. Cause you needed that timeline in order to like ever know what the hell was going on. Um, she and I watched it. Like we were both surprised we got it. And then we watched it. And we're like, Oh, of course we got this. They need us to be able to explain it to people after the episode's over. So like this cottage industry of like the bloggers or the podcasters who are explaining, you know, and we do this with game of Thrones too, but like who are explaining what you just watched or trying to break it down for you or trying to orient you. Um, You know, a question we have to ask ourselves is like, is that good storytelling? I think there is great storytelling in Westworld. But I think some of the ways in which uh, it is enamored with tricksiness and disorientation uh, is to its detriment. Yeah, Yeah. I would say so. Uh, I think it's also interesting to consider how the creators of Westworld have approached the meta aspects of the show. Uh, differently than let's say another uh, show that we've recapped, Twin Peaks, mm. right? Where like David Lynch, he just does not talk about anything. He like does not analyze anything about that show at all publicly, as far as I know. Like or extremely little. He he wishes the work to speak for itself. And uh, he won't he won't do it at all. He's like as soon as you talk about it, it's not art anymore. <laughs> like you, right. Yeah, you you he, can you yeah. basically have your own interpretation. Yeah. And that's that's what it is. That's all. That's all it is. We att- you and I attempted to recap Twin Peaks, uh, the the return, and you know I got a lot out of our podcast about it. Like, really, as usual, really enjoyed talking to you about it. But uh, 
but it's almost like, uh, you know, to use a AI related term, it's like the uncanny valley of, um, of complex shows. Like if, you know, if, uh, uh, David Lynch like doesn't explain anything at all, like that's, that feels completely fine in a valid point of view. Then if you explain everything in the text of the show itself, that's also totally fine. But it feels like expecting us to to do the homework and read the recaps and create the timelines and then read the interviews and watch the interviews and watch the making of like it it feels um you know more difficult or not as enjoyable in some ways than than a show that does you know that, that does more to explain things in the text of the show itself uh or that does nothing does that make sense like to me at least yeah I, yeah i what i will say is that um I think Le- I know that that Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan are extremely intellectual, uh, well-read people who who relish that kind of puzzling and homework stuff. And there are most of the time I really love it too. Actually, you know, like, and I I wouldn't cover the Westworld the way that I do if I didn't enjoy trying to puzzle it out and not for like a aha I figured it out but just sort of like it's it's a fun occasionally intellectual exercise for me to try to logic and pick apart story but something I've said a million times and I will repeat again here is that that doesn't work for me um I even said it earlier in this episode that doesn't work for me uh without emotional catharsis and so I don't mind the puzzle boxing. I don't mind how impenetrable a lot of this season is. I mean, and I think that's why Twin Peaks works so well is because it's just like, there's just, it's a mood piece. Yeah. And I don't need to know what's going on because it just like conveys mood so beautifully. But I think Westworld sometimes loses the balance of that. Um, And when you get something like this episode of 90 minutes and a lot of it is just like explaining things. Yeah. (laughs) In a way that doesn't always feel connected to emotionality for me, um, especially with with some of the stuff, the choices they made with um, like the Dolores character to make Dolores um, kind of one note. And, and Lisa Joy talked about this on the Empire podcast. How she like she went out and interviewed um, a, a bunch of like mil- women who lead in the military. And what it takes to be a woman commanding forces in the military. And it kind of takes this mask. You have to wear this mask and never, ever show doubt or anything um, that that's something you have to do. And Lisa Joy was kind of using it, not in, def- in, not in a defensive way, but sort of explaining her approach to Dolores this season. That's why Dolores is kind of the way she was this season that I've talked about struggling with. I think... I understand that. I think maybe what would have been great is if Dolores had like one confidant that she could let her mask slip for. And I don't even think Teddy was that person for her so that we could see that internal conflict while she kept the mask up for all the other things that she had to do. That would have helped me access that character a bit better. Um, but as a result, because she was had that mask up all season and because Bernard was in a confused state all season, I, I find, um, with a few exceptions, I find the emotional access to them blocked. And so then I, then I just have the puzzle to chase and then I'm not as, uh, invested. Exactly. It it makes complete sense. I think one of the challenges of this show, and some people might hear what I'm about to say and say, well, that's what, that's what makes the show great, you know? But for me, one of the challenges of this show is you don't know what it is 
you as the viewer are supposed to want to have happen. And what I mean by that is like you you don't know first of all a lot of energy is spent figuring out what is even going on, right? Who's who, what time period are we in? Um is this a fake, you know, is this like Charlotte Hale or is it someone in Charlotte Hale's body and so on and so forth. So that's like one one of the barriers to figuring that out. Another barrier is like you you don't even know like do you want Bernard to like do we want Dolores to like kill all these robots do we want her to not kill these robots and I I think a charitable perspective on this is to say hey um, really good shows ask questions and they don't come up with answers they you come up with the answer yourself you know mm-hmm. um, for me that does not pass a smell test in in this case because. You, you have just been introduced to the idea of robot heaven five minutes ago. And now she's like deleting people off robot heaven and you're supposed to have an opinion on whether she's supposed to be doing it. It's like you you barely understood the concept of what this is that's happening. And now you, you're supposed to have an, an opinion on whether she's like what Dolores is doing is correct and whether Bernard should stop her. Uh, that's just and bad then, storytelling in my opinion. And then yeah. what's what's even, I mean, I don't know about bad storytelling, but what's even more disorienting for me about that whole part of this episode is that when she comes back as Charlotte, she has changed her mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She has changed her mind. She's decided to put Teddy in robot heaven and preserve robot heaven and keep it safe forever. And I really could not tell you why. <laughs> what were the set of experiences that, that, like she died. Holoris had right that. She, yeah, yeah, she died. I I couldn't. I can't connect that change in her. Uh, a, a like a fundamental philosophical belief she had was changed, and I I really could not tell you why. And I think that's like it, it, you put it really well, Joanna. Which is like puzzle boxing is fine. Like it's fun. It's invigorating. Uh, theorizing on this podcast with you, you know, making predictions, getting them wrong, which is usually what I do. Uh, it's a blast, but it only works if the emotional stakes are still there. And in this case, it, the emotional stakes are just so confusing that, uh, I, I mean, take, take this episode. Like, what were the most emotional moments in this episode for me? Like, uh, I, I'll tell you the most emotional moments for me were the Logan speech with Jim Delos. And uh, Maeve losing her, or you know, letting go of her daughter at the end, and Akichta, right? And like that's it, that's it. Now the Maeve thing, you know, that's been building up for a couple seasons, so that's like that's um, that's pretty pretty good. But everything else, you know, like Bernard, who's one of the main characters, William, one of the main characters of the, of the show, like, uh, and of course, I didn't like the Sizemore thing. You know, th- none of that really landed for me emotionally, and. It needs to, you know, for for me to call this a success. Um, so anyway, uh, we are we are really uh, on a digression here, but uh, you know, I'm glad we're talking about what worked and what didn't work. But let's talk more a little bit a little bit more about the uh, what actually happens, right? Mm-hmm. The actual plot of of the story, uh, which is the. There's this, so there's this version of Robot Heaven, and the idea is that they're going to like open it up in the park, and that all the hosts who who pass through this physical barrier um, are going to get their minds transported into Robot Heaven, right? Yes. And like you see, and it's so like, it wasn't really physical. I mean, it, you had to be in that spot 
but there wasn't anything actually really there. I thought it was amazing the way they ha- like it was like there's robot heaven, and then you see Felix and Sylvester, and they're like, "What door?" You know, and like I thought that, that was really was interesting. Ele- that's elegant. Yes, I that, was, that is like, elegant. You know, exposition, right? Yeah, of of all the exposition criticisms we have, I think the explanation of how the Valley Beyond uh, Rift thing works yeah. was really elegantly done because they're like, "What door?" So you're like, "Okay, humans can't see it," and then you and see then it from you, their perspective, you, right? And then yeah. you watch this like one guy who we don't know yet, so we don't have to like care about him as a character. We're just processing information, and he runs through, and you're like, "Oh, I see." He's in the valley. His body just went over a cliff. And then we see some shit happen in the forge. And we're like, oh, he's been uploaded to the cloud. Great. Uh, Cool. Next. Like, I get it. I get it. No, no, no one had to explain to me what happens. I just saw it happen. Show, not tell. Great, great, great stuff. Yeah. I wish the show did more of that. So, uh, so anyway, like, uh, Akichita makes it through, right, into the, into the valley beyond, right? Uh, reunites with his uh, beloved. And that was a really nice moment. Um, and then clementine like rides in and starts like forcing everyone to kill each other right because they've reprogrammed her code right she's like a virus so she's like through the mesh network is infecting all these people and then there is this like great visual of Maeve like stopping everyone from hurting each other right so it's like two kind of viruses competing with each other yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and that is a great visual it reminded me reminded me of um uh, Zack Snyder is Batman v Superman. There's a scene like where <laughs> Superman is at like the Day mm-hmm. of the Dead or whatever, and everyone's like kind of reaching out to him in slow motion. It, mm-hmm. it was like very similar, in my opinion, in composition and feel to that scene. Uh, anyway, great scene. And then um, like you see Maeve's daughter, she's with her new mother, and she like makes it through to the other side. Um, Maeve is killed. Uh, there was a moment where like like Clementine is killed, but then like the people keep fighting to kill each other. Did you understand what was going on there? For me, it further muddied the idea of like, um, what is dead may never die. Uh, someone pointed out to me that they think like the hosts themselves once infected sort of start spreading the virus. Mm. So it didn't even matter that Clementine was down because it was spreading among the hosts. Um, I don't know. I don't know the rules of that. To me, it seemed like, Okay, Clementine's down, but since the the thing is still spreading, like maybe she could be brought back? Question mark. Is she really dead? I don't know. Uh, and and the the show seems very invested in in a lot of ambiguity when it comes to that because I think they're sort of like um, hedging their bets as to who they could bring back for season three if they wanted to. It just felt like a it's supposed to be this big moment slash reveal and i just didn't even understand what was happening like you see clementine die decisively and so you think oh well now the code will stop spreading and everything might be okay but then like it, it seems to continue to spread and so it's just it's like it's just I'm, I'm i'm more asking questions about what is actually happening rather than being in the in the spirit of the moment you know um, and if it was just like one of these moments that happened during the course of this episode or even two, I'd be like, okay, no problem. Like I'm still really invested. But as you can tell, I had these kind of what is happening moments continuously throughout the course of this episode. So uh, anyway, anything else we want to say about this Valley Beyond scene and, and what goes on here before we move on to, to the rest of the episode? Um, I guess, I mean, like uh, the Mave stuff works for me because Tandy is so great yeah, and that tablet. And that tableau of her, like, putting her hand up is so beautiful um, and all of that. 
I have some, I think there's some logical inconsistencies here as in terms of like, what's a useful thing to sacrifice yourself for and what's not. Like, I, I think she could have definitely pulled a size more in this one. right? I think she could have made that run to the valley with her <laughs> yeah. daughter if she wanted to. Um, I did like a Kichita helping, which, you know, is something that he promised to do. Something like that. I don't know what purpose Hector and the, um, uh, Hanario and Armistice were serving in terms of like who they were fending off. I don't know who's impervious to the virus and who isn't. Like right. how woke how yeah. woke do you have to be? I have a lot of questions about all that. But emotionally, and this is this is the thing I'm talking about. Emotionally, the Mave thing landed for me because of I would say purely on the strength of Tandy's performance. Yeah. Uh, so. It is the closest this episode came to like a satisfying conclusion for one of the characters. Um the uh people in the chat are asking why is uh, Akita's wife Kohana in the uh, Valley Beyond? There's a couple options there. I also was like, what the hell is she doing there? Um, because she was not with the group that went in. Yeah. Uh, so was she preloaded into the system? That's one possibility because like when Akita met Ford in episode eight, he was like, yeah, there's a door and I go through it. And on the other side, uh, it, you know, is everything I want, including her. So, like, Ford knows that Akichita wants to find Kohana in the Valley Beyond. So it's possible that Ford, because we know Bernard had been to the Forge, even though he doesn't remember it. Bernard had been to the Forge many, many times. That's something that the Logan AI says. So it's possible that they preloaded Kohana into the Valley, so she was waiting for him there. Okay, that's one possibility. Mm. The other is uh, Bernard says... Uh, that uh, robot heaven, as you call it, Dave, uh, there the host can be whatever they want to be and like do whatever, like it can be anything they want it to be. Right. So there's a possibility that like Akita ma- manifests her yeah. through his desire to be with her, which really just kind of underlines Dolores's point about what that sublime is. That it is its Be- own kind of prison, you know, that right. it, it's not really like, freedom. Is that really your wife if you've, like, it, you know, some sort of Ruby Spark situation? Is that really your wife if you, like, dreamt her? You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, those, good, those re- are... Good Ruby Spark reference. Um, the, uh, Lo- yeah. Love a Zoe Kazan reference. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta drop in the Zoe Kazan reference whenever possible. I mean, I think that one of the... Uh, that's, this is another interesting idea. And, and ultimately, um... I, I am sad the show did not do more with the, these like really interesting ideas that it brings up. One of which is this idea of like, are we living in base reality, right? Because that's something that Dolores is really like. She has a big moment about it in this episode of about like, like nothing that the humans can ha, can build for us can compare with the, their world, right? Yeah. Like, there's something extremely important to her about being in what I would describe as base reality. In the in recent years, there have been speculation about like, okay, is there a possibility that we're living in some kind of simulation? Like you and I, Joanna Robinson and Dave Chen, like in the real world, are we in some kind of simulation right now? Um, and there's actually like really convincing philosophical arguments that, that we might not be in base reality. Um, and, you know, Dolores says that she wants to get to base reality. Um, but I, I don't know that I fully grasped, you know, why that was so important to her. Like I get on a general level, you know, once you've been in the park and um, it, things have been fake for so long, like why you'd long for something that's not that, but beyond that generalized dissatisfaction with the park, I didn't really like, there the, didn't really seem to be that much in Dolores's actions and things that have happened to her specifically that made me think, 
understand why like base reality was so important for her. Um, that reminds me of this is like a, a rough, stupid analogy, but please bear with me. Uh, <laughs> I'm bearing. I'm bearing. It, it, it reminds me about the fight for um, uh, marriage equality. Uh-huh. And like a bunch of people being like, well, you've got a partnership and like marriage is not that great anyway. So like, why do you really care about getting, be able to get married? And I think the people, you know, who are advocating for it were like, because I w- just want the option that you have and you consider a right. And I like, don't tell me what I can't have. Then I want it more than anything else. You know what I mean? So I feel like Dolores denied this thing is like, I want that. I want what they have. There's some reason they're not letting me have it. So that's, definitely why i want it most of all and whether or not she'll find out that that's that she should have stayed in the park the whole time is a is a question for another season but like i completely understand why she would be like oh i want the thing that's been denied to me that's what i want you Mm -hmm. know so um we should say that marriage equality does confer you know very extremely tangible and understandable benefits to people who who have it so um but I, i i understand the spirit of what you're saying which is like I'm that. sorry if I'm, I didn't mean to imply that it did at all. I don't. I don't think you did. I just want to be, be, make sure that that's yep. 100% clear. Yeah. Um, Thank you. But um, uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I think you're you know you're right that that's like it's this desire to like to to know what you don't have right like th- th- that fundamental drive. But to me, the fundamental drive kind of came out of nowhere. If that makes sense, like it just was a part of her character this season. I don't know. Um, what do what do you um, think? Like, do you, well, yeah, do you feel I like mean, we, we had enough from season one to understand, like, why this all-consuming desire is part of her? Well, uh, am, I, am I naive to expect that? Am I, my, are my <laughs> expectations too high, you know? I think that's challenging because season one ended with her, like, waking up for the first time. Mm-hmm. So we don't yeah. have a lot of time with her as, like, a, a woke person to know what her drives and desires would be. Right. Um, but, you know, that that which is real... Uh, is the only thing that matters is something she says is right. something William says. That which says. is irreplaceable. Right? Sorry, that's that's that you know that which is irreplaceable. But like also like Juliet saying like, tell me one true thing. Like this idea of like uh, mortality and truth and you know like give me mortality. You know like it's interesting because like Dolores is like immortal, right? In theory, um, if you don't shoot her in the head, but like uh, but give me mortality because it's only mortality that makes life actually worth living i don't know these these are these are questions that are that have been in the genre for a really long time right. like you know who wants to live forever if we want to talk about highlander again we can but um i never the, not want to talk about Highlander. Uh, <laughs> the other thing i want to say is um a lot of people in the chat room are confused about teddy can i clarify some teddy stuff yeah hold and on then, before you get to that though jason yeah. Rhodes says she's been enslaved and abused by humans for 30 years most of her existence so her motive felt pretty solid even if the plan was a bit confusing um, sure. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. It, it, it's not the least convincing thing in this episode. It just is kind of like I kind of have a little question mark around it. But um, all that said, yeah. So Teddy. Uh, so the idea is that people go through this robot heaven door, and their body. Or. Their, their, <laughs> what'd you say? I said or. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, their minds are transported to robot heaven, and then their bodies kind of fall into this pit. And the yeah. idea is that like Dolores starts flooding the pit. Right. Um, and draining this like huge server farm, which is going to be bad for them. Uh, but then it stopped. But then that's why like this, this valley is flooded with all these uh, dead hosts that don't have any uh, programming in their brains anymore. 
right? Right. We felt like when they were analyzing them earlier in the season, they're like, these hosts are virgin. Like nothing has ever been in their head. And those are the hosts. I think it was like one third of them or something like that. Those are the hosts that made it. Yeah. Yeah. So also um, in that that episode or in the episode before, like you see Teddy in the water, right? So there's this question of like, how did Teddy get there? Because I don't see Dolores carrying around Teddy's body through this whole episode, right? Yeah, yes. I have no, I have literally no clue how Teddy's body ended up in the valley. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to explain how it happened. No, people want to know how his like mind got into the valley. They're oh, confused about yeah, that. Well, she carried uh, it with him. She carried it with her. You know, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, Like, did Dolores drag Teddy's body? No. Did the flood extend far enough to Teddy to like sweep him up into that lake? Maybe. She seemed um, like she was riding a pretty far she distance. She traveled really far from his body. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I don't know how Teddy ended up in the valley. I have no idea. Uh, but um, she did uh, like extract his, the pearl out of his head. Um, and then I don't know what she was going, what she was planning to do with it. I think if I had to guess, like when, she, when she wasn't going, when she was going to destroy Robert heaven, when she was still in Evan Rachel Wood's body and she was Dolores, I think her plan was to take Teddy with her, like in her pocket to the mainland as she did these other pearls in a bag. I think whatever change of heart and mind she had in all the time that she was inside Charlotte Hale's body, uh, she decided, no, I'm going to save robot heaven and I'm going to put, teddy there because he doesn't like this is not what he wants he does not want to come to the mainland he just wants to run around in a valley and be free that's what what he wants and so i'm gonna i'm gonna give him like i was being selfish like well no i mean lisa joy explained it this way she said that dolores changed his program when dolores changed his program earlier this season she did it um, temporarily. Like she wasn't planning to keep him that way. It was just so that he could survive to get to the mainland with her because she wanted him with her selfishly or to preserve him one way or the other. Uh, both. Something like that. Um, and I think what she decides, not after he kills himself for some reason, but later after she's gone through this whole Charlotte Hale situation, uh, is that she shouldn't like do that, that she should just let him go. And so, like, Maeve lets her daughter go into the Valley Beyond or whatever. Uh, she she plops his little pearl on it. She says, I have one more soul to take with me to the new world. That's a confusing thing to say because we think she means the mainland. But what she means is one more soul. She beams Teddy up to the Valley Beyond. And then she sends the Valley Beyond off somewhere where James Marsden can never come back to the show. And they don't have to pay that actor anymore. <laughs> is, is my my theory on that. But, uh, you know, I, I and Lisa Joy has said a number of times in interviews, like, we have to take Dolores at her, or at her word. The valley, the gates of the Valley Beyond are closed. That thing is gone. Marsden's not coming back. Zan McLaren, who plays Akichita, is not coming back. The little girl who plays Anna and is probably going to be too tall to play Anna next season is not coming back. Like the little, uh, the little version of the Ford boy that William needlessly yes. killed at the first episode <laughs> is not coming back. Not coming back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so that's how Teddy got into the Valley Beyond is that as in Charlotte Hale's body, she puts the pearl into the machine and, and loads him up that way. He gets in a different way. So then, uh, so that's all the Valley Beyond stuff, right? All the people that go to the Valley Beyond, like, you know, I guess we've already flashed cut, cut to the future where Dolores like beams them to the future, as you've already mentioned, but there is this major reveal, spoiler alert, 
that uh you, you know Bernard witnesses um Charlotte Hale kill Elsie and then he's like holy cow Ford was right humans were evil all along now I got to get Dolores back aka Wyatt to clean this mess up so he recreates Dolores into the body of Hale who then kills Hale, and then the entire time in the present day that we've been watching Hale, it's actually been Dolores, a.k.a. Holores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's what we can say about that. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't see it coming, except for, I should say, Kim Renfro, Business Insider, called us last week when we did our trailer breakdown uh, thing. We hadn't seen the finale yet. She called it because there's a shot in the trailer of like naked Hale yeah. uh, encountering clothed Hale. So uh, Kim called it off of that one. Um, yeah, I and and what is fun? Uh, once again, this is extra. This is extracurricular curricular home, homework. What is fun is to go back and watch Tessa Thompson's performance, and um, actually, it's kind of stunning. But it's like one of those things that like you can't appreciate it unless you're really, really, really looking at it. But she talked about like some of the stuff that uh, Evan Rachel Wood told her that she does, which is yeah. like uh, not moving her arms while walking, not moving her arms while walking, looking with her eyes first and then turning her head. Yeah. Uh, you see some of the like uh, this little smile that she gives is like a classic Evan Rachel Wood as Dolores Wyatt smile. So like, yeah, Tessa Thompson was doing like calculus this season and we didn't even appreciate it but like we weren't given opportunity to appreciate how like the point was to confuse us the same is true of like what jeffrey wright has to do when he's playing arnold versus bernard you know what i mean it's stunning what he's doing but like only if you have the time to go back and really really watch it you know it it is a a fantastic avon rachel wood you know impersonation almost feels like disparaging it it's like you know, embodying of Evan Rachel Wood. It's really, it's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think we're almost at the end of all the crazy random shit that happens <laughs> in this episode. But, but, but like this idea of Bernard being helped by Ford and then like you know, probably no more than 10 minutes later, this massive realization that it actually wasn't Ford there all along almost plays like a parody of a, like a Nolan reveal like it, it is happens so quickly after it's like it, you know, oh so-and-so is going to help me you know figure this out and by the way so-and-so wasn't even there at all whoa um and that is made all the more galling by the fact that like we spent you know a whole episode in shogun world or whatever when we could have been introducing some of these concepts earlier i, I at this moment, like the show is fully going off the rails, and like I'm, I'm like emotionally checked out. I'm still watching to figure out what's going to happen, but like I just, I don't, I don't have respect for the storytelling at this point anymore. Mm, what yeah. do you think, Joanna? Uh, the Ford stuff. Yeah. I um, the first time I watched it, I felt the same way. I was like, why even bring him back if he wasn't really there? Like, what's going on? And then the second time I watched it, thinking about it more, I realized what they were doing is a repeat of the season one stuff where, right. uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's Bernard waking up, right? It's, right. I, I get it's, the thematic. No, no, right? no, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm not yeah. saying you don't get it. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I, I didn't I didn't get it the first time I watched it. And then the second time I was like, oh. Uh, watching Elsie die was the final most painful moment for Bernard. And that's what prompted him to wake up, which is kind of like sweet, 
at least. But like that's oh, it's real, real subtext, I think. And like and then um, or maybe I was too stupid at that point with all the other reveals to like really be cottoning on to what was happening. But like, yeah, so so he's talking to himself the whole time, which is something, you know, Dolores did. In the first season, uh, you hear your thoughts externalized and then you internalize them or whatever. Um, so it works. I just, uh, I feel like there are just like a few dots that they didn't connect in it for me, if that makes sense. Um, right. I, I think thematically it makes sense. Like, w- like what you said, you know, hearing your own voice, like hearing this voice as your own and so on. Like, and that, that is part of what makes a host become woke. I get that, like, thematically it ties in with things that the show's been building up to. I just think the execution is really rough. Like, for this to be a reveal that's meaningful, you got to introduce it not within the same episode that it happened, or at least, like, way earlier. You know, like, it just mind-boggling to me that they would do it this way. You know, imagine if, you know, um, Bernard had done the, like, delete for, you know, three episodes ago or four episodes ago and and then like we'd been having the ford continuing to interact with him and then oh now it's you find out like this whole time it's been fake you know that would actually be somewhat effective but the fact that it happened you know really really quickly it just felt like they wanted to cram as many reveals into the finale as possible to prevent anyone from guessing it going into it you know which is something i think the entire finale suffers from but I have a few, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be entirely surprised, I suppose. Um, I think they, they really wanted to be, uh, 10 steps of every, ahead of everyone this season. Yeah. And I do think the show suffered a little bit because of that. And as I've been saying all season, um, I don't think they need that. Yeah. I think they think they need that and I don't think they need that. So. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So uh, again, I'm not saying the I, the concept couldn't have worked. Like, I just want to be very clear. I, I don't think the concept of uh, Bernard seeing a fake Ford is inherently bad. I just think the way it is executed is so clumsy um, and borderline disrespectful. <laughs> you know, I, I mean that that's that makes that's making it very personal, but it, I don't mean to be. Uh, I j- I was not a fan of it. So uh, okay. But it's it, then he like Bernard goes out into the ocean. It's actually a very beautiful scene where he goes out to the ocean and he's like, "I'm scrambling all my memories so people can't figure out like what happened." And that's why the whole season has been all nonlinear is because you're experiencing it as Bernard experiences it, and it's all nonlinear. And then that basically brings us to present day, right? I think that that basically gets us to today. Anything else you want to say before we get to this like final sequence with with Charlotte Hale going off the island and, and stuff like that? Um, I think that um, well, we have the weird elevator fake out with William that we'll talk about more at like the very end. But um, there's that scene where like uh, William gets into the elevator and you think he's going to meet Bernard in there, and uh, it oh, turns right. out we're looking at two different timelines. So yeah. Uh, okay. So, by the way, did you want to talk about, like, how Robot Heaven is only for <laughs> Westworld people? That was another thing we should mention. Yeah, I mean, there's this idea that maybe Westworld, like, um, yeah, I don't, ha- I don't have a full answer for you in terms of, like, did the other hosts in the other worlds hear the call of the Valley Beyond? Right. Um, but basically, but- there's people who have objected online to the fact that, like, seemingly only Westworld hosts go into Robot Heaven. No one from, like, Shogun World or Raj World or any of the other worlds 
are there. Um, yeah. And so what's up with that? I think it would be fun. I mean, like, I don't know, once again, if it was budget or whatever, but I think it, I think that final scrum would have been even more fun if there had been, like, Raj world people and yeah. Shogun world people there. But what's also true is that uh, Lisa Joy and Jonathan uh, specifically have not revealed a few more uh, parks in on the island. Uh, and there's, uh, they, I believe what Jonathan Nolan said in his interview with Entertainment Weekly implies to me that they held them back on purpose with the intention that they might, if they decide to use them as surprise treats in season three. Hmm. Because what he said is he was like, um, you know, Hibbert and Entertainment Weekly was like, uh, I'm surprised you didn't reveal those parks because, like, we're off the island now. So, like, why didn't you just tell us what the other parks were? And he's like, well, not all of our favorites are off the park. And so, like, which to me just means Maeve. And so, like, I think there's a – depending on what they decide to do, I I believe firmly they have not just decided what they're going to do. Uh, but depending on what they decide to do, they left the possibility open uh, – for Sylvester and Felix to resuscitate Maeve and yep. for that storyline to still be anchored in the park next season if they want it to be. So Charlotte Hale, with Dolores's mind inside her body, uh, her host body, leaves the park. And as she's doing this, we hear Dolores doing like this Breakfast Club style narration about all the friends we made and lost along the way. And the bat, the basket case, <laughs> the basket the geek, yeah. the rebel. <laughs> he's like, she's like, so, you know, some of us like, real, you know, we really wanted to survive, and some of us didn't deserve it. You know, cut to man in black, and I just felt like, wow. No, this she is... said, she said, like the worst of us, the best of us, it cuts to Teddy, yeah. and like the worst of us, it cuts to William. So, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway. That's when she, uh, Charlotte Hale encounters Stubbs, and Stubbs gives this shocking speech uh, where he says – because Joanna Robinson, we did not have yet enough twists and reveals. In this episode, uh, Stubbs says, uh, you know, the old man himself hired me so many years ago I can barely remember it, but he is very clear about my role here, about who I was supposed to be loyal to. I guess you could call it my core drive. Did he say core drive? I feel like he said core directive, but anyway – Core drive. And this project the company started blurs the lines, you know? I'm just not sure who you're supposed to be loyal to in a world like that. But what do I know? Guess I just stick to the role Ford gave me. Uh, I'm responsible for every host inside the park. And then he says, in- inside. inside the park. <laughs> Technicality. Uh, loophole. We call so, it a loophole, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I think many people have interpreted Lisa Joy's interview after... Uh, this episode to mean that Stubbs is in fact a host, right? Or you could read my interview with the director of the episode who explicitly, without any hedging, told me he was a host. Right, right. Um, and then like Lisa Joy backed him up, I believe, is what is what that was. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I will be honest, like I did not, that's not, that was not my interpretation when I first saw it. I know he says like core drive or core directive, but I thought, I thought he was just wink nudging using the language of host to communicate with. Uh, you mean when he said I got hired so long ago by the old man, I can't even remember when it was. Yes, Joanna. I mean, look, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean I'm a host. Like it could mean that, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that, but you know, fair enough. Fair enough. So the director told me, Fred Toy, the guy who directed this episode told me that, um, Jonah Nolan wrote, rewrote 
this scene the night before. Um, and then like later clarified to me after I wrote my piece, like, cause he was like, he wrote it the night before and he wanted to make it clear. Uh, and I'm going to use this platform to make it clear that, uh, this was, this had been their plan for a very long time that Stubb is a host. Um, but they just sort of like rewrote some of the dialogue the night before. So like, uh, Chris, uh, Luke Helmsworth, Yep, Luke. Uh, Luke Hemsworth had to memorize like the lines on the plane on the way there. Uh, and apparently he went, oh, shit, when he read the line. Um, so which if it was a plane all along, I don't know why he said that. But anyway, point being, uh, Stubbs Dude. is definitely a host. And uh, what what's fun about that is like I talked about all the characters that they killed off this season to winnow down the cast. But, um, because I think there's also a possibility, uh, uh, you know, once again, speculation, they haven't decided, um, that they could do a massive time jump into the future if they wanted to, because all of our, uh, you know, given what we see in the post credit stinger, like all of our main characters could be immortal. They could do a massive time jump if they wanted to. Uh, and if they decide to do that, uh, then Stubbs still gets to come. <laughs> so that makes me happy, um, you know, as a possibility. Well, the fact that he wrote it the night before is not evident at all by the fact that it created widespread confusion about whether or not Stubbs was asked. Well, I, uh, think, I, I think what the director said to me is that they intentionally left it, like, a little up in the air. But then he was just like, but yeah, he's out. So yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. So. I, I I'm being actually like mean spirited now, and that's not good. But I mean, yeah. I think that I think that um, it's you know, it's not. I'm not the first person that thought that, or the only person that thought like he's not a host, or or were conf- was confused by how subtly that was revealed um, that he's a host. So. Uh, yeah, people in the chat room are like turning against me. Like it was super obvious that Stubbs was a host. Guess what? Not everyone felt that way. You know, like I've had people like message me that say that that's not what their interpretation was. Uh, I think you're right that there's enough there to point to that, but certainly I don't think the show removes all doubt. And even Lisa Joy acknowledged that it's very subtle. So uh, anyway, anyway, we are gonna get through the rest of this episode, <laughs> and it's gonna be fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotta gotta look on the br- gotta look on the bright side. Gotta look on the bright side. So. We're almost- there, buddy. <laughs> Almost there. We're so close. <laughs> We're so close. So, uh, uh, okay. So she, Charlotte Hill makes it off the island, reprints another version of Dolores, puts herself into Dolores's body again, like in her old body, uh, builds a version of Bernard for reasons. Uh, specifically, I guess, like she thinks he needs to be in the world as well. And then now it's going to be like Blade Runner, you know, 2086 or whatever whatever year it is, like hosts blending with humans, cats and dogs sleeping together, uh, replicants among the living, you know, like that seems to be what the show is setting up for next season. So um, I, have a, I, have, I have a couple other references just really quickly to please, get through. Um, please. One, one question that people have is like, how did Dolores get her pearl out of Charlotte's head and into her head, uh, you know, and... So it's complicated yeah. shell, shell game. Uh, a popular theory is that she, there's like a, you know, she printed up. I mean, basically there's five hosts on the mainland now, right? There's Bernard. There's Dolores. There's what the showrunners are specifically calling so as not to gender it the creature inside of Charlotte Hale. They've used that word. Creature is the word they've decided to use. It's non-gendered. So it could be a male host or female host or maybe hosts don't have genders, whatever you decide. So Bernard, Dolores, the creature inside Charlotte Hale, and then three more. Mystery. Uh, yes. 
So the theory is that like wait wait uh, three more because you're you're saying you counted the number of chestnuts five. in that bag, right? Five, five. She took five with her. Yeah. One is Bernard. One is inside Charlotte. There's three more questions. And we don't know who that is yeah. or what that is inside Charlotte. And then there's three more that are question marks. Yeah. And so the other pop culture reference I would pull out here, obviously, is Battlestar Galactica, uh, which had the final five Cylons, which was like this whole mystery at the end of the season or the end of the series, which is like, who are the last five? Who are these five uh, Cylons, which are the robots in Battlestar, like masquerading as humans? Uh, and they get revealed. Uh, you know, so I think. Uh, they're intentionally leaving it quite ambiguous, I believe, so that next season, uh, you know, we'll, we'll meet. They will be revealed over the season, both who they are, and may, and like who's inside Charlotte, and all that sort of stuff is like the game that they want to play with people in season three. So, Got whether or not you want to play that game is up to you, but that is the game that they are setting up for season three. Uh, and, and the whole Bernard thing, uh, really, really, uh, smart friend of mine brought up the example of, um, Mr. Glass in Unbreakable. Um, are we allowed to talk about <laughs> spoilers for Unbreakable? So, uh, sure. You're not going to spoil anything. Are you going to spoil anything after Unbreakable? No. If you know what I'm saying? Uh, okay. So spoilers for Unbreakable starting right now. Um, starting right now. There's that monologue that Mr. Glass gives at the end of Unbreakable, which is about like the reason why he set, you know, Samuel Jackson's character is this like, is a, like a terrorist, is a villain. And the reason that he was like doing all this was to try to draw out a, a superhero, you know, as played by Bruce Willis. And he was like, because you being a hero out here in the world defines me as a villain. And like, I needed, I didn't know who I was until right. I knew who you were. And so this idea of like, I need you to be me. And, uh, I think you get similar dynamics with like, uh, professor X and Magneto, um, in X-Men, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, I mean, you, you can roll your eyes at it if you want. I don't care. But like, I think that's kind of what they're going for is like, I need you. It, it won't. And Dolores is all about the greater good in her own mind. And so I think she's like, you need not just me, but you in order to survive. It's sort of like, um, I will not spoil the end of infinity war for anyone right now but i will say that like i will say more obliquely maybe dolores has seen like however many versions of this plays out there's only one way in which the hosts win and for that she needs bernard Mm. so Mm. you know i don't know yeah i mean i think it's you know it's again really abruptly introduced in the episode but um whatever at this point <laughs> about the, like it, it's it, it's not one of the things that bother me the most it's just like oh okay yeah she needs she needs kind of a nemesis in order for this to work whatever let's talk about the post-credit sequence great uh so the post-credit sequence takes place seemingly years into the future perhaps decades when like the forge is completely like depleted and shut down, and then we see like William stumble in, and he very hilariously says, "Am I in a thing?" <laughs> Which is kind of like a question that I think many viewers have been asking themselves with characters they see on screen in Westworld this season. Uh, and he's like, "Am I in a thing?" And and you find out that basically he is in a loop, theoretically reliving you know one of the worst days of his life where he killed his own daughter. Um, and, uh, you know, his daughter's questioning him for fidelity. So, so for some reason, someone in the future is trying to create some human host hybrid version of William. 
Um, is there a better way to explain it than what I just said, Joanna? Please, I think you do you do a better job than me of this. Um, I think there. Um, I I believe what I've understood from interviews that I've read is that the hosts are looking for something from William, and they keep sending him through this loop. And it's not a host version of William. And also, to be very clear, William was not a host this whole time, right? Yep. He's been a he's been a human this whole time. He is a human consciousness in a host body in the last scene and that elevator scene as well uh, that we get earlier in the episode. But elsewhere, he's a human. This has been confirmed because the elevator scene and the last scene we've seen are, I, I would say, maybe even beyond decades, maybe hundreds of years in the future, way, way far into the future. Um, the hosts, um, something that Lisa Joy said makes it sound like the hosts are in charge now and the hosts are sending William. I don't even know if it's through that day, but maybe it's just through that day, but certainly, um, just like Jim Delos keeps looping back to the death of Logan. Um, William keeps looping back to the death of Emily because this is, this is his defining moment of his life is the day is the day he killed his daughter. Um, uh, who was, who was a human? He was a human and she was a human when he shot her hundreds of years in the future. He is a human consciousness and a host body. He has been punished with immortality. Uh, he is being like, um, you know, like Sisyphus, he has to keep pushing this rock up this hill. It's just, it's a torture, uh, a hell, a purgatory, whatever you want to call it. Um, I have a fun theory, <laughs> that the creature to use a, to borrow a Nolan phrase inside of Emily's body, uh, it, cause it's not Emily, uh, is Dolores, but that's not something we would find out until season three or beyond, but, yeah, uh, or perhaps never. I mean, it sounds like that in season three, we're going to find out the circumstances that created the world in which this post credit sequence is possible, you know, like, but it's not clear if we're ever like actually going to get to this moment in time. Right. Uh, tr- very true. Um, absolutely. But yeah, so there's something, but, but what's interesting is that, um, there's this moment in the, in the cradle where, uh, the AI Logan, when they walk past the man in black and he's giving that like super sly look that I mentioned. And he says, you know, some people are irredeemable is something that, uh, AI Logan says in that moment. Um, and, and when, um, the person that looks like Emily, the artist formerly known as Emily asks, asks, uh, you know, future William, what is it he wants from all this? What he, and he says, uh, you know, to, um, I wanted to know that a system couldn't tell me what I was, what I am. So like to define myself, to break my own pattern of behavior, which he's unable to do. Uh, in this version that we're watching a hundred years in the future, he has still killed his daughter. Like this is, he's still doing the same thing. He like, he has not been able to break that pattern. And so he is, as the system said, irredeemable. So, um, either the hosts are trying to figure out if he's, if, if redemption is possible for him or he is trying to figure it out. I don't know. It's a little confusing, uh, to be honest with you, but, um, uh, yeah, these these are my closest approximation to understanding what is going on hundreds of years in the future. As yeah. usual, Joanna, um, really good job of of giving meaning to the uh, virtually <laughs> incomprehensible. Uh, I I think this post credit sequence is like encapsulates a lot of what I find unforgivable about this episode, which is that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I I did not feel the emotional payoff slash catharsis moment with William and his daughter. Like William killing his daughter last season, last episode. Like that that is a hugely tragic moment. And then him coming to terms of it, like theoretically coming to terms of it at the end of the episode, digging a hole into his arm. Um, there is no moment at which he recogni- reckons with that in this episode, uh, uh, unless you'd argue like that this final scene is that. And it is a complete, like, WTF, um, we're going to throw a bunch of, like, this other huge curveball at the audience. Like, it seems more concerned with, again, the the trickery and the plot twists rather than the emotional stakes. And uh, I think that sums up the, the whole episode. It's like, it's like, rather than focus on the characters and the emotional payoffs, uh, the the episode is content to insert more twists and more curveballs and more hard left turns and and things that uh, the audience will have trouble understanding and that ultimately I find that um, extremely unsatisfying. I I would, I mean, I agree uh, in many regards, but I would push back a little bit in this final moment. William has been saying uh, this whole season, like, you know, in, in that, in that scene he has with Jim Delos, he's like, man isn't supposed to live forever. You know, like he he wants to destroy the forge. He thinks the immortality project is a bad idea. He has decided that it is a bad idea. It needs to be destroyed. Um, it's terrible. And I think what we're supposed to take from this, uh, and and I didn't, I, I will admit, I didn't get it my first couple times through uh, trying to figure it out myself. But I, but now that Lisa Joy has said, like, kind of the hosts are running the show in this, then it seems to me that like. I would guess Dolores who else would want to punish William is punishing him by giving him exactly what he said, you know, like, okay, you came up with this immortality project. Then you decided it wasn't a good idea anymore, but guess what, buddy too late. Now you're going to be trapped forever living your hell in the immortality project of your own making. And, um, Ed Harris's face in the final seconds when, uh, the artist formerly known as Emily says fidelity uh, it is right up there with any of the facial expressions um, that I think we get in terms of communicating emotion to me. I have a hard time with William. I have had a hard time with William, but I think there is emotional catharsis that either exists or is at least um they're striving towards i don't think the final scene is just us to be like whoa it's the future now i think they are trying to thematically and emotionally anchor it in things they've been talking about all season whether or not they pulled it off or whether or not you're just too disoriented at that part at that point trying to figure out what's going on um i think that's easily debatable but i don't think it was like i don't think they lisa joy and jonathan are the kind of storytellers where they're just like it's only about the trickery. I think they get distracted by the trickery. I think they get yeah, too enamored okay. of the trickery, but I don't think it's just about that. I think that's fair, Joanna. I think, uh, again, as usual, great explanation. And like, if that's the way it landed for you, then I could see that being really effective. But I've spoken with, you know, I don't know, a dozen people uh, about their experience of the finale. And most of them didn't feel the way you felt about it. Most of them watched that final post credit sequence and asked, what the hell is going on? You know? And so I understand that, like, okay, yeah, this fits in, and now he's living in his own private hell and whatever. But that relies on the audience actually comprehending what what has happened. It relies on um, the show having given you enough information for the audience to comprehend what's happened. 
And I, I just don't feel like that's the case, but that's, that's my opinion. Well, no, I, but I think we kind of agree. Like, I, I mean, anecdotal evidence of like who did and didn't like this episode aside, I think you and I agree that like, we might disagree on like whether or not they were striving for thematical or, or, or emotion in that final thing. But what we can agree on is that the episode in part and the series in part, um, gets too confusing for people to be able to latch on to some of the very interesting and I would say always smart because I think these creators are maybe sometimes too smart for their own good smart things that they're trying to explore mm. you know what I mean um, but I, I once again I just think that narrative trickery gets in their way and I like I said to sort of wrap us up because I know we've been doing this for a while and we probably all want to like move on with our lives but like um <laughs> Uh, as I've been saying all season, there are three episodes that I loved so much. Um, you know, Kiksuya, Kananamai, Riddle of the Sphinx. These are all fairly linear, linear episodes. I would love for Westworld to just be confident in his storytelling in season three and not have to do a lot of um, obfuscation in order to tell their story. Uh, all right. I know we gotta we got to wrap up. Uh, here's my closing argument for this episode is um, here, here's what this episode has done to Westworld for me. Okay? Uh, a, it's killed off a ton of characters, uh, in often in unsatisfying, a.k.a. William, or uh, B, ridiculous, a.k.a. Sizemore, ways. Um, and B, anyone who's dead can be revived. And C... Any character you see might actually be another character in that character's brain. Uh, and some people might find that exciting and energizing. And I find it to like completely rip away any emotional stakes that I have, like that I would experience in the show. It's like, I don't know what's happening. Death doesn't matter. This character could be this character. Um, that is ultimately like the kind of soup of, of ideas I'm left with at the end of this episode. Um, so I did not find it to be a particularly good <laughs> finale. In fact, it really destroyed a lot of my faith in the show. Um, but as usual, Joanna Robinson, really glad to have the opportunity to talk with you about it. And I love talking to you about the show, Dayton. <laughs> so I'm glad you said that because otherwise I would have doubted. But um, no, no, I do, I do. Uh, but we got to wrap up right now. However. Mm-hmm. However, uh, we will have another episode next week, bonus episode, with a, a very cool Kickstarter backer. Uh, and you should listen to that for more of our follow-up thoughts. In the meantime, find more episodes of this podcast at DecodingWestworld.com. Email us at DecodingWestworld at gmail.com. We may read your emails on the final episode of this season of the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.